Right, we're in Romans 11. Uh, I don't know whose Bible this is, but uh, thank you. <laughs> Whoever left it. Um, Romans 11 is part of the context in Romans 9, 10, and 11. It's the climax of this portion of the book of Romans. Um, in it, we're addressing three major issues. I've, I've talked about them, but I decided this morning I'd write them out so you would see them. We're, we're addressing three major issues in this whole section. One is um, to account for Israel's rejection of the gospel. Um, Paul, if, if you have preached the truth of God and the people of God have rejected it, how do you believe it's really true? Um, why should we believe that it's really true? If the people to whom the, to whom the prophets spoke, as we looked at it last week, the people to whom the prophets spoke didn't accept your message, why should the Gentiles? Why should anybody? That's, that's a first issue. A second issue is um, to account for the necessity of the kingdom. We pointed out some weeks ago, and we haven't been belaboring this a lot, but it is an important part of it. In Romans 1, Paul describes Jesus. In fact, he defines the gospel as being about his son, and then he gives two facts about his son, who, who was born according to the seed of David by the flesh, was proclaimed or defined as son of God with power, by the resurrection from the dead. And so traditionally, uh, exegetes have, have said, well, the one is the humanity of Jesus, the other is the divinity of Jesus. But folks, the divinity of Jesus was not new with the resurrection. The, 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 the revelation of the divinity of Jesus was not new with the resurrection. So what is new with the resurrection? Uh, well, Acts 13, 32, and 33 tell us that Jesus essentially enters on his office as king at the resurrection. Uh, so so the, the, the two parts of his definition of the gospel in Romans 1, I think it's 3 and 4, um, he, is, he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, was defined as the son of God with power according to the resurrection from the dead, uh, um, those two parts of the definition of the gospel are about his royalty, both of them. And the, the issue is that Jesus is not, may I say this uh, um, uh, reverently, he is not merely savior, he is king. He's a, he's a most unusual king who goes to battle himself and leaves his army behind fights the battle first, wins it, then sends his, his army in <laughs> to clean up. Are you with me? Most unusual king. All other kings, including David, sent the army to the field. <laughs> yes? But this king goes to the battle first. And that's what makes him savior. Uh, so his saviorhood is an important part of it. We have, we have latched onto that. It's a key part of our 
gospel presentation, but the kingship of Jesus has been, has been expunged from the gospel, essentially. But Paul, but Paul doesn't do that. So that Romans 1 to 11, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are not parenthetical. They're the climax of the whole argument. How can we get to the kingdom if Israel, the, the, the people of the king, are, are rejected? But yet the church teaches that Matthew presents him as king. Yeah, exactly. How do we miss that? I don't know. <clears throat> well, that's part of our eschatology, and we just we, we worry about that at the end of our theology. But when we're talking about soteriology, we talk about our doctrine of salvation. How do we then define salvation? And so we omit these things from our thinking. So in Romans 11, he's going to bring back to us the importance of the kingdom. The kingdom is essential. Um, uh, the, the salvation of the people of the king is essential. You can't have a kingdom if you don't have a people to rule. <laughs> right? uh, I, I have used this before, and I'm sorry to repeat, but the king of Greece, the last king of Greece, um, as far as I know, once he was banished, never set foot in Greece again. He lived in Italy. By law, he was banished from, uh, from Greece. <laughs> and you might feel, if you were in Italy and you were invited to meet the king of Greece, you might feel some honor in meeting the king. But he's not much of a king because there, there's nobody who acknowledges him as king except just the title that he retains subsequent to his banishment by his people. <laughs> uh, uh, the people of the king have banished him in scripture, but he will reestablish his, his right to rule and the effect of his rule over them. And that's what's, what chapter 11 is going to end with. Fred? Yeah, would you, I think you've done it before, but differentiate uh, between the, the church and the kingdom. The church, we're, we're in the kingdom, Colossians 1, 26 or 27 says that. We've been transferred out of the realm of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. So we're in the kingdom, but we're not coextensive with the kingdom. Uh, um, the, the kingdom ultimately must be universal, and it must be eternal. Uh, so the church, the redeemed of, of the nations, and including Israel, um, and, and we'll see that as we get a, f a little further into chapter 11. Um, the, the, indeed, in this passage this morning, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, uh, the church includes the remnant of Israel, but there's coming a time when Paul can say later in chapter 11, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Now, if Israel is simply the church, then he's saying all the saved will be saved, and that's a tautology. It just doesn't make any more sense to say that than to say everything you've bought, you've bought. Well, of course. I mean, and it would include Old Testament saints also. It will include Old Testament saints and and uh, the, the uh, people like Melchizedek, who was not a member of Israel, and he wasn't a Gentile. <laughs> I, 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 I was looking for that. What are you talking about, Alman? There, there, there was no Israel in Abraham's day. So there can't be any Gentiles. Are you with me here? Or Jews, for that matter. No Jews until after, after the exile. The only Jews ever mentioned in Scripture are after the return from Babylonian exile. So there are no Jews, there are no Israelites in the day of Abraham. 
Uh, so, pardon? I'm not playing with you. I'm, I'm wanting to learn. I want you to learn. <laughs> Quit talking about Melchizedek as a Gentile. He's not. He's. Yeah, but he can't. He can't be a descendant of Judah. The father of Judah cannot be the descendant of Judah. <laughs> He's not a, well. He is a Hebrew. Uh, the scripture calls him a Hebrew. Yeah, but that's that's not ethnic. It's a different kind of word, and we will talk about that perhaps in another setting. The uh, so the the kingdom is going to be critical, folks. Without the kingdom, without the resurrection, without the establishment. Look, folks. Not only have the people of the king banished him, Israel, but the realm of the king has banished him, the earth. How can it be that the king shall not fulfill his destiny to rule in the place where he was rejected? It's the only right ending of history. Am I making any sense to you? So that finally, the last stage in, our, in, in what we now know about salvation does not come until the new heavens and new earth come. So I'm, I'm not even saved even at the resurrection, until the realm that we were created to rule is saved. Are you with me here? So as man falls, subsequently the creation falls. As humanity is redeemed, the realm that, they were, that we were created to rule must be redeemed. And if, if it is not then the very purpose of God in creation is thwarted, and no purpose of God can ever be thwarted. Right? So the kingdom is an essential part of the gospel proclamation and of the message of the book of Romans, and here it's the third point. It explains why Gentile christens. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, spell check. Uh, Gentile Christians must not despise either unbelieving Israel or especially believing brothers and sisters from Israel. I should have added there. It was I woke up at 4.30 this morning and I thought, I need to add these things. So uh, things got a little bit dicey. But um, this is the whole point of the book of Romans. There are, there are Christians, blood-bought Christians, children of God, who despise and condemn one another. We've been talking about this since the beginning. Romans 11 is going to tell us why in, in the two, actually three parts of the answer that follow in chapter 11, um, what we're going to see shortly in the next slide, um, is telling us why I can't despise Israel. Their rejection means the wealth of the world, Paul says in chapter 11. Yes or no? Yes, yes indeed, he says that. So how can I despise an Israelite? Even though he may be rejected, he's an unbelieving Israelite and has rejected faith in Christ. Nonetheless, his fall means my hope. So how can I despise him? And all the more then, how can I despise a brother or a sister in Christ who may be an Israelite, him, him or herself, they don't eat meat, as Romans 14 talks about. They don't eat meat. But so what? What has that to do 
with our relationship to God in Christ. So talking about religious distinctions among Christians, talking about cultural religious distinctions among Christians, simply they have to be set aside in relation to the, uh, the teaching of the grace of God that we accept one another. As Christ received you. Look at Romans 15.7. I've been saying this is the key verse of the, of the book, and I, I still think that the more I think about Romans, the more I think this is it. So uh, uh, the, the version I memorized it in says, Wherefore, receive one another as Christ received you for the glory of God. The as Christ received you part of that verse is summarizing chapters 1 to 11. The receive one another part of the verse is summarizing chapters 12, 1 to 15, 13. So I have in that verse a summary of the whole book as I understand the book. The purpose of the book is to teach Christians that we must be as gracious to one another as Jesus is to us. He did not make me give up any sin to become a child of God. Having become a child of God, he is, he is weaning me away from my sin. It's been hard. It's been long. It's not finished yet. But as a child of God, he's weaning me away from his sin. And part of the weaning is to learn grace. And if I have received grace for all the sin, in spite of, because of, all the sin that I have committed, then what practice can you embrace that I must judge more righteously than God does? Especially in matters that are neither commanded nor prohibited by God. All right. Are you with me here? So we're, we're heading through this, and it's all leading up to uh, Romans 15, 7, finally, um, as the climax of the book. Uh, and all of that, the, the amazing thing, folks, Psalm 29, the thunderstorm glorifies God. The th- in, in the thunderstorm that comes off the Mediterranean and, and, and flows across Lebanon, the mountains of Lebanon in Psalm 29, you see a revelation of the glory of God such that the lightning and the thunder, its, it's power and its force makes us, makes us aware that the very voice of God shakes the creation. And it's glorious in its revelation. And in the end of Psalm 29, the psalmist says, and everything in his temple shouts glory. If Psalm 19 Uh, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters forth speech. Night unto night utters knowledge. There is no sound. There are no words, but their line has gone out into all the earth. If that's true, if the heavens themselves glorify God, the greater glory of God will come when people who differ over the way the Christian life should we live, actually accept one another the way Jesus accepted us. So you don't eat meat? Wonderful. Don't eat meat to the glory of God. <laughs> you do eat meat? Wonderful. Eat meat to the glory of God. But don't impose your standards on anybody else. These are things that God has neither prohibited nor commanded. Are you with me here? So 
This is the grace of God that Paul is inculcating in his readers in Rome. In a very real sense, the, the New Testament aims not so much to define behaviors for us as to define value system for us. If you will embrace the value system, the behaviors will follow. It's teaching us what it means to be in the culture of the family of God. What did it mean to grow up in the family you grew up in? There were right, right ways of doing things and there were wrong ways of doing things, yes? There's the old joke, all of you have heard it. I will start it, you will all groan, and I'll stop. Okay. The daughter and the mother were cooking ham. Okay, you've already, some of you already remember it. Okay, and, and the mother cut the end off the ham. And the daughter said, why do you do that? And she said, I don't know. My mother taught me to do that. Well, why did she do it? Well, let's call her and find out. So they called mother, and she said, well, I don't know. That's what my mother taught me to do. So they called great-grandmother. Great-grandmother said, well, when, I was, when, I, when, when your grandmother was at home as a child, our pan was too short for the whole ham, and I had to cut the end off. <laughs> there are just certain right ways to do things that don't really amount to a hill of beans of difference. Yes? Uh, Archie Bunker was watching Meathead put his socks and shoes on. And Meathead put both his socks on, starting with the left, and then put both his shoes on, starting with the left. And Archie said, that's not how you do it. You put the right sock on first, and then you put the right shoe on, as if it mattered. Yay or nay? (laughs) My point is, though, that in the family of God, the values matter. They're fundamental. They express our relationship with God. And I must understand. What did you say? Oh, he said I do it the weed head way, and I said, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> the, the guilty dog barks first. Uh, um, uh, the, the values express the nature of God. And as we embrace those values, we are embracing the nature of God, and he works his own, through the Holy Spirit, works his own character in us. And that character determines what we do the rest of our lives, even when we don't even realize what we're doing. Am I making sense to you? As Paul gives directives, they are not rules to be followed. They are guidance to know what the Holy Spirit is working on in our lives. How does he go about working out the character of God in us. What does this book mean? Well, it means three things in terms of accepting one another. It means ministry and your spiritual gifting in Romans 12, 3 to 8. It means loving without play acting in in Romans 12, 9 to 13, 10. And it means accepting people who differ with you in in the minutiae of the Christian life. So... This is, this is where Romans 11 fits. It's teaching us not to despise Israel. Yes, brother? But the trick, I would think, though, is to be good at understanding what's minutia and what isn't mm-hmm. That's right. Something you can't agree on. Yeah. Right? There are people in church, yes. whole churches, denominations, that, for example, yeah. you know, being gay is fine. Yeah. Having a gay minister. Well, again, I say Romans is talking about the things that are neither commanded nor prohibited. In this, in this 14 and 15. So okay. when we talk about that, then... But people kind of... Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. 
But, but uh, that's why I keep saying the things that are not commanded or prohibited. Now, there are five stages that Paul goes through in order to establish these three goals or to accomplish these three goals. First is uh, Romans uh, uh, 9, 1 to 29. Why has, why, has God, why has Israel rejected the gospel? Because God hardened them in unbelief. He has judged them. God, folks, is a savior, but his salvation occurs through judgment. Always, all salvation that God carries out is accomplished through judgment. For your salvation, he judged our sins in Jesus. Yes or no? Without judgment, there is no salvation. When he, read the Psalms. And especially the psalms that are prayers to God, they are called lament or petitionary psalms. In them, when the psalmist asks for, de- for deliverance for himself, he also often asks for judgment of his enemies. And we're going to see an example of that tonight. Yes, sir. You speak to why God hardens hearts. Yeah, we, it's going to come up in the next section, so I'll, I'll, I'll get to it very shortly. But the first point is God always judges by, by I'm sorry, saves by judging. How can he establish his rule over the earth unless he judges the wicked in the earth? Are you with me here? Now, the second part of the answer, and this is where the next stage in all this comes, is in chapter 10, 1 to 21, Israel rejected God's righteousness. They did not want it. Why would he harden them? Because they don't want it. Folks, this is Romans 1, 18 to 32. Um... Uh, the, the wrath of God is revealed against what? All unrighteousness and ungodliness of mankind who do what? Not reject. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Are you with me here? Why do you make a distinction between reject and suppress? Reject uh, is, is a matter of, of saying, I don't like it, I'm not going to even talk about it. Suppressing means he's going to actually change it and hold it down, hold it back, and not let anybody hear the message. See, I may reject something. Um, by the way, yesterday's uh, football um, outcome is, is quite acceptable to me. I do not reject it at all. Alabama and Miami were beaten. Yes. <laughs> Auburn beat Alabama. War Eagle. Uh, uh, yes, sir. Oklahoma beat uh, West Virginia and, and was was ranked number four in the nation. I do not reject. Yeah, keep it humble. Well, I'm humility is coming. It's guaranteed. I have watched the Sooners. Snatch victory, a defeat out of the jaws of victory more times in the last 50 years than I care to even talk about. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we don't have much of a defense this year, so we're not going to win the national championship. But looks like we're a shoe in in the playoffs. I do not reject that, nor do I suppress it. <laughs> but what I'd like to suppress is our bad defense, but I can't. Um, you see the difference between the two. They, they suppress the truth. They know it. And they, they haven't said that's not true. They just suppress it and want to hold people away, back from even understanding it. 
So, so, so Jesus in Matthew 23, the woes on the Pharisees, you bar the way to the kingdom. You won't enter, and you don't let anybody else who's trying to enter get in. Well, and without becoming overtly political, the Jewish-controlled media does that all the well, time. They don't just re if they reject something, they speak against it. Yeah. But if they don't like the story of what Christians were yeah. doing, they'll suppress the story. It'll never make the light of day. The issue for us here is that Israel knew the righteousness of God. Folks, um, turn, turn to Isaiah. We've done this before, but turn to Isaiah 46. This is where I first became aware of this concept. Isaiah 46. 46. I'll tell you shortly. I don't want you to get there too soon. Isaiah 46. Uh, at the beginning of the chapter, what's going on? Yeah. But also, he, he goes on to talk about Israel's failure to trust him. In Isaiah 46, uh, 12, um, behold, oh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 46, I'm in 49, that's my problem. Yeah. Isaiah 46, 12, listen to me, you stubborn hearted, you who are far off from righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Stop reading and look at me a minute. Turning from God. Yeah, turning from God. Turning to? Something else. Yeah, anything else. Righteousness. If you turn from righteousness, you're turning towards sin, would you not? Yep. Right? So the next verse. Um, um, Behold, I bring my righteousness near. It's not far off. Stop reading, please, quickly, and look at me. If, 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 if Israel has turned from righteousness and God is going to bring his righteousness to them, what, what would be normally, what would Christians say is coming? Judgment. Judgment. But look at the text. Now verse 13. Behold, I bring my righteousness near, it is far off, and my salvation, salvation will not delay. I will. Look, look at that. What does he say? Yeah. Where? In Zion. And my deliver and my righteousness in Israel. What? The righteousness of God, folks, is also the righteousness by which He saves. And if it is the righteousness by which He saves, the best definition I've ever heard of the righteousness of God is that it is that perfection of God by which He has He is loyal to Himself and His covenant. He is. His in fact, I haven't said the whole definition. It is his characteristic, complete loyalty to himself and his covenant. If he has covenanted with Israel, read the opening chapters, the first 11 chapters of Deuteronomy. How often does God speak of their righteousness? First Thessalonians. Well, now I want De Deuteronomy. I'm, I'm talking about Deuteronomy. In chapters 1 to 11, how often does God speak about or Moses speak about God, uh, Israel's righteousness? Never. Essentially never. I'm reading a book called The Triumph of Grace in Deuteronomy. Um, it's a fantastic book. It's one of the... I, 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 I've kind of put off reading it for a time, but I had a responsibility to study Deuteronomy for the, for the immediate present, and so I've been reading it. Israel, neither the first generation nor the second was righteous. The second generation 
the one that's getting ready to go into the land is the, is the bunch of people who worshipped with uh, the Moabite women, worshipped the gods of Moab. They're not righteous. They're not, they do not trust God. Then how can God save them? Because he says on several occasions in those chapters and later in the book, I'm in reading in Deuteronomy 29 in that book just now, but he says it's for the sake of the fathers. Well, are you righteous in and of yourself? Then why does God save you? Because he made a promise to to himself, to Jesus. Psalm 23, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He is characteristically completely loyal to himself and his covenant. And he cannot save those who are in covenant. He has brought us into covenant with himself. I didn't batter down the gates of, of heaven to get into the covenant relationship with him in the new covenant. It's the Holy Spirit who convicted me of sin. It was the Holy Spirit who wooed my heart, brought me close. It was the Holy Spirit who engendered in me love for God. Yes or no? If that's true, then if he loses me, he loses his reputation. And indeed, in Isaiah 41 to 46, this is the precise argument God is making. If I lose Israel, I lose my right to be called God. Paul speaks about in 1 Thessalonians that even if we're faithless, yeah. he is faithful, yeah. he cannot deny himself. Yeah, but you know, he's got some other problematic statements there that we, I still haven't solved, but, but I'm with you. <laughs> Go ahead, Glenn. When Daniel realized the time was come for God to take him, Israel was in fact, he Yeah. That's right. That that's a, when I read that I realized that that's the only base today on which we have to pray for one country. It's essentially the same yeah. The world still thinks of the United States as a Christian yeah. country. It's much less so than it perhaps ever was. Yeah. But but, the, but we're considered a Christian. Yeah. Country. We're considered a country that believes in God. Yeah. So the only basis that we have to pray for our own country and for mm-hmm. the mercies of God for yeah. our country is on account of God's reputation. And that's echoing the prayer of Moses on Mount Sinai. If you destroy Israel, then the people from whom you took them out will say it's because you couldn't bring them in. It's his reputation. That's the whole point. God is characteristically completely loyal to himself and his covenant. And if that's the case, then there's hope. So Israel rejected God's righteousness, suppressing it, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. But the third part of the answer, why, why hasn't Israel believed, is in chapter 11, 1 to 11. Uh, God preserved a remnant chosen by grace, and unfortunately, the rest he is hardened. But he always keeps a remnant. That's the point in Romans 9. Abraham had two sons. Were both of them the seed through whom the promise came? 
No. Now, Isaac had two sons. Were both of them the seed through whom the promise came? No. Isaac has, uh, Jacob has 12 sons. Has that distinguishing grace of God ceased? No. But some within every tribe are the seed. There's a remnant. Always there's a remnant. That's what we'll see in chapter 11, 1 to 11. And then fourth, uh, but God gave the promises to Gentiles through faith. And the goal, as Paul will say, is to stir Israel up to jealousy. God's missionary strategy with Israel is to send them no missionaries, but give all the blessings to the Gentiles to drive them crazy with jealousy to get their blessings. And when they, pardon? We're not doing much of a job, and part of the reason is we haven't, we haven't inculcated, we have not adopted the value system. Folks, Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. And with that and a new car next year, I'll be happy. Isn't that the way most of us reason? Even most of us who are biblically literate and trying to grow spiritually. This is how people can go through what Chuck was talking about at the end of the sermon this morning. That's how people can face beheading for Christ's sake. It's how they can face... Haven't you read some of the things people suffered under the Soviet system? Uh, And the stories of Ethiopia and Uganda, the stories of of, um, Burma and China, have not even come out yet in large measure. The stories of the Holocaust survivors, they just kind of sneak out from time to time. Yes? And by that, I'm referring to Christians who were suffering too. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer being the, the, the chief example of this. How, how can you stand against Hitler in those days of his incredible power, stand against him, and go to death for the sake of Jesus because you bought into the value system and you consider the privilege of suffering shame for the sake of, the, of Christ's name. Greater wealth, this is, this is Hebrews 11, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. So, third part of the fourth part of the answer, he's given the, the blessings to Gentiles to stir Israel up to jealousy. And finally, verse uh, number five, the fifth part of the answer, thus he will stir Israel to jealousy, bringing them to salvation through faith. And that closes with that great um, uh, doxology. Oh, the, the wisdom, oh, oh, the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways and his, his schemes past finding out. Uh, for who has given to him that he must respond to him? Who has been his counselor that he, sh- he should respond to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things. Then he says there, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So this is where we're headed, and this is why we're going through what we're going through in the, cha- in the book. Uh, with 11 minutes left, uh, <laughs> chapter 11, verse 1. Yes? What are they jealous of? They should be jealous of us experiencing their very blessings. 
but they're not jealous because we're not reveling in our blessings. They demonstrate the blessings in the individual. Mm -hmm. The individual displaying the gifts of God in them yeah. to the Jewish people. Uh -huh. okay. Yeah. So we should be living the life they were, they were intended to live in right relationship with God, in joy, and, and in the blessing of God. How does that fit with the prosperity? Okay, it doesn't fit at all. <laughs> okay, that's all I'm yeah. asking. Yeah, thank you. Turn to uh, first, uh, 2 Timothy 3. Turn to where? 2 Timothy 3. Um, the promise of the Mosaic Covenant is physical blessing. You can read that in Deuteronomy uh, 28, verses uh, 3 to 14. There are 68 verses in the chapter, though. And if, if there's blessing in verses 3 to 14, what's in 15 to 68? Curses. <laughs> right? So if you want the physical blessings of the Mosaic Covenant, you also have to take curses because you can't pick and choose what you want in the law. Paul says you can't take one part of it without taking all of it in Galatians chapter 5. So if I don't want the curses, I better not plan on getting the blessings either. All right? So, so Paul has redefined for us what, what the hope of the covenant is for us. So Romans, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 12. Um, and all who want to live godly in Christ Jesus shall be persecuted. <laughs> so what is, what is God's reward for righteousness. Persecution. I, I was teaching ideas like this. I hadn't gotten this far in it in a class in Memphis. We're, I'll, we'll do this in a little bit more and we'll stop for today and go into 11 next week as the Lord gives opportunity. But a guy in the back of the room who caused trouble from the beginning of the class, uh, he was just a problem student. I, had to, I spoke fairly sternly to him, and I don't do that very often. Uh, at one point, he, he was simply asking questions that, that showed his, his uh, fundamental ignorance. And I had to stop because he didn't know what he was talking about. And so, unfortunately, that was one of the very few times I've done anything like that in, in my teaching career. This is my 36th year. Um, but but um, he said, but if we obey, won't we be happier? And I, I said, was Jesus? What does Isaiah 53 say about him? Man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs. Jesus was perfectly obedient. If anybody had the right to be happy from obedience, then Jesus had it. But he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs. Yes? Yes? How would you share that having peace? Uh, peace is with God and not with man. Except within the church. Isn't that more important than Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the point. But in verse uh, Psalms 119, 165, it says, Great peace have they mm -hmm. who love thy law. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, if, you, if you turn to Colossians. That's what everybody wants. Yeah. Peace. Yeah. But and, people don't differentiate between, between joy and happiness. Yeah, that's true. It, in, in Colossians, Paul says, The peace of God will, will garrison your hearts and minds. You remember that? And people will say, you ask them to do something, they'll say, well, I just don't have peace about that. That's not even what that passage is about. It's collective. Colossians is about as much about the unity of the church as it is about anything else. It's certainly about the deity of Christ. 
but it's also about the, uni- the unity of the church and the peace of the church is crucial. It's not that you should feel good about doing something. You should seek peace in the body of Christ. Um, so, back to 11. What, what we're going to do in chapter 11 is he's going to set up two things in the passage. First is the concept of the remnant. You'll look there in verse uh, uh, 2. God has not cast off his people whom he foreknew. Um, just point out here that foreknowledge in this case is not a matter of knowing their faith beforehand and choosing them because he's talking about Israel. And Israel as a people group is an, un, an unbelieving people in the time of Paul as they are in, to, in our time today. So whom he foreknew is not about what he knew about them was, was good, so he chose them. It's, he, he established a relationship with them in Abraham before they even came into existence. And verse 2 continues, or ha, Do you not know in Elijah how the scripture says how he, um, uh, how he interceded with God against Israel? Lord, uh, uh, they have killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I alone am left, and they're seeking my life. But what does the oracle say to him? I have left for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed down to Baal. The point is that God always preserves a remnant. So he establishes the concept of the remnant. And then he establishes what God's doing with the rest of them. Folks, uh, we, I taught at Criswell College for a year part-time. And in, chapter one day, in chapel one day, the president was speaking on hell. And there was... One student in the, in the college, since it was a Baptist school, you might expect this a little more likely than some others, but, um, but uh, he, preach on, he was preaching on hell and the judgment of the lost, and there was a fellow up in the, in the balcony that kept saying, Amen! 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 <laughs> finally, finally, it was Paige Patterson, if, if you know that name. He was president of Southwestern Seminary now. Pa- Dr. Patterson stopped and said, Folks, we should not be reveling in the, in the condemnation of the lost. It ought to break our hearts. And uh, we should not be amening this. We should be grieving over it. So he is not telling us about the hardening of Israel in order to make us feel good about ourselves. Folks, Peter will say that the righteous are only scarcely saved. It might have been somebody else that God saved instead of me. So he says, what then, verse 7, what then, what Israel is seeking, this they did not obtain. But the election obtained it, and the rest were hardened, as it is written. And then he gives Old Testament quotations. So he he starts by establishing the concept of the remnant, and then moves on to the judgment of, of the rest of Israel. And this is a grief. I am, I am, I can't, I can't tell you how hard it is for me to contemplate these things. It, I, I think about them from time to time, but I can't keep my mind on them. It, my mind recoils at these things. But they're in the Word of God. Folks, if everything in the Word of God is something you really, really like, you're either the most spiritual person, Christian that ever walked the face of the earth, or... You're just reading the Bible with your own presupposition system and not getting the message. 
This is the word of God to a sinful human race. There will be things in there I don't like. I should expect that. I should count on it. And I should count on the fact that I I have to change. God is never wrong. I'm the one. Whenever I think God is wrong, I know I'm wrong. (laughs) I hate that. I I wanted wanted to be wrong just once. Just once, Lord. Just once. <laughs> but it's, it's not possible given his character. That's our foolishness. That's my foolishness that's involved. Yes, brother. Well, it's our pride. It, it is our pride. We want to shape God in our own yeah. image. Mm-hmm. We want to create an image of God that suits us. I, I have read very little Voltaire, but Voltaire has, has, has been charged with saying God created man in his own image and man has returned the favor. So, uh, so, I've never actually read that in Voltaire, but I suspect it's accurate, accurate that he did say that. Uh, so, we must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us in due time. He must instruct us how to think. We may not, we may question, ask, what do these things mean? How do, how, how do I interact with these? How, but I may never ask, how could God possibly be right? The difference between uh, Zechariah's question in Luke 1, how do I know that these things will be fulfilled? And Mary's question in Luke 1, how can these things be since I've never known a man? The one is asked in faith, the other is asked in unbelief. So that so that Elizabeth herself, when, when Mary shows up there in Luke 1, when Mary shows up at Elizabeth's house, says, and blessed is she who has believed that there will be a fulfillment of the things spoken to her by God. Elizabeth is making a little, she's a wife, she's making a little dig at her husband. <laughs> but he needed it. Because he was stricken deaf and mute for nine months until the fulfillment came. Let's close with prayer. Father, um, teach us to be Mary's and not Zechariah's. We humble ourselves under your hand. Ask for clarification. Ask for understanding. Ask for support to our faith. But never question you. Never doubt that what you do is right and good and benevolent and just righteous righteously you judge and righteously you save in your righteousness you are saving us teach us how to live that righteousness that Israel may become in fact jealous of us seeing their blessings lived out in our fellowship and then come to faith themselves for Jesus sake we pray amen Amen.